Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 31st of May 2021. It's a bank holiday Monday and tomorrow is June, flaming June. We've had the rain in May and now we've got the sun in June. So everything in the recipe is coming along just nicely. So let's talk about old crop feed wheat and start with the fact that that's come under quite a lot of pressure. A lot of people are trying to get their sheds empty. There's a big drop to new crop prices. So we have seen X farm values go down to 191X for June, if you can find someone who can move it. July, currently around about 195X. I don't think July is all over, and we've mentioned this on previous weeks. Harvest at the moment is a little bit late. Obviously, you know, a flaming June and hot July could possibly bring that forward. But right at this moment, it's a bit behind schedule, and I would not want to be trading July running a short book. So... I think that one might improve if you can bear having your sheds with a bit of grain in for a bit longer. Any price in the 190s is still exceptionally good. Let's not forget that. Old crop, feed barley, a few of the boats that were going have sailed. So the market's lost a bit of its steam and we're getting mightily close towards harvest now, aren't we? So that one is going to finally lie down and die. If you had some, you'd still make a good 180 something for it. So if you have not acted and sold it, then wave it at somebody who's likely to try and buy it and get on with it. But I did say that two months ago, £30 lower, so you know you can take or leave my advice on that one. And malting barley's all over by the shouting. So moving on to new crop, much more exciting. Oilseed rape has been as low as 410x for harvest this week. It's currently back up to 430, very volatile. The whole of the marketplace has had a right smack. There's all sorts of games being played. There's the sentiment change, obviously, being an influencer that the Doing Grain podcast is. People took our wise advice about yields, and there's been a fair bit of selling going on, and the whole world has come down purely on the people listening to this podcast. And then I woke up. But the reality is that the prices have fallen back. Yields are a bit better. There's also been a bit of rhetoric beginning to creep into the market from some of the bigger players. If the Chinese not particularly wanting to be inspected to find whether the pandemic started in the lab or whether it started in the wet market. So they've got a bit sulky about that. And, you know, allegedly we're talking about cancelling some of their contracts. That might be to do with the market having gone down as well, but who knows. But at the same time, they've also started having conversations about them having a monster wheat crop on the way. Well, you know, it's like, no, the virus never started with us and we've got a monster wheat crop. Do you believe any of it? Well, you know, even if they do or they don't have a monster wheat crop, we won't know anyway because we don't have any way of measuring it. So they have bought a large amount of forward grain, which is an issue. Equally, I believe India are saying something along the same lines. They're expecting to have a big big crop. But just to chuck some sort of positive news into what has been a very bearish week, there is now the first talk of a heat dome. 
in the US coming up in the next, uh, it's raining at the moment, which is doing the crop the world of good and the planting has gone really well and everyone's not feeling any pressure and it's going to look fine for at least two weeks. But if a heat dome, whatever that means, does begin to form and it gets too hot, it's a bit early for the crop to get a bit too hot and run out of moisture. So maybe that could be the next weather scare that sends things to the sky. So it's, it's all to play for, as we've mentioned before. And corn has definitely lost a lot of production in Brazil. So we know that. And all of these crops have got the vital bit between, you know, getting this far and actual harvest. There is many a slip between the cup and the lip. So, yeah, goodness knows what to do. Still slightly bearish in the doing grain camp. Underlyingly, we think that there is a world issue on supply which will stop the market from falling too far. I think there will be moments where if there can be a scare again, the market will go up. That is just a gut feeling and, and how we feel like trading at this point. But we are not running any form of big position against where we're at because we just kind of, we don't know who to believe and don't, you know, that's where we sit with it. We'll react when we get a, a positive vibe, if you like. Interesting reaction to my conversation last week about Harvest. We've had more people agreeing with us, saying, yep, it's better than I thought it was going to be, or yep, it's going to be a big harvest. But we've had one or two come on and say, no, you're completely wrong. Our wheats are not going to yield as high as we'd like them to. It's not going to be a bumper. It's going to be okay, but it's not going to be enormous. So, you know, it's nothing quite like spreading division amongst your crew. But yeah, in the end, we're the people who do the podcast and we have to make a stance on it. Our take is that on the whole, there is more than expected, hence the sentiment having been bearish. Right, I've talked about rape, harvest prices for wheat, 160 for harvest. If you're selling it for May 22, X farm 172. Yeah, what else is there to say, really? It's, these are still good prices compared to where we started. Yes, it's come off 20 quid, but still pretty steamy prices if you're going to get a bigger yield. Uh, feed barley harvest time, 140 plus. That's still fairly buoyant. There should be good export demand for that. Malting barley. Ulcers are a bit more relaxed about that at the moment. There's obviously a better yield coming, hopefully a lower nitrogen crop. It would be lovely to have a fantastic spec, maybe a slightly lower price, but just everything within the right nitrogen range and no screenings, and no germination and no nothing wrong with it. It would just be a treat to have one of those nice easy years. So if anyone can go to church on Sunday and have a quick word with God, it would be great if you could sort that one out because it would just save a bucket load of stress for us people who trade malting barley. Anyway, with that... Today I am in conversation with a chap called Jim Alston, who's a farmer local to the Altium area, and he and I, many moons ago, stood in the field of a cricket pitch having a conversation about grain trading, and, and where it led to was 25 years ago on Wednesday this week, I walked into the office at Alstom Grain and started managing their marketing business, and uh, so 25 years of anyone's life is, a, is actually a long period of time, and uh, I've got to say, I'm so glad they took the risk. And I'm so glad that it's worked out. And yeah, I couldn't have written the script any better. What a lovely bunch of people to work with at Ailsham. With that, have a great week's trading. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. 
To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. And now it's time for Farm Chat. This morning I have got with me someone who is totally responsible for the last 25 years of success at Aylsham. So I've got a gentleman called Jim Alston with me. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Andrew. So we'll start with a little story about... Two blokes playing in a highly competitive game of cricket, your brother's cricket games at Bradfield. We were fielding together with our pints of beer in our hand (laughs) and having a conversation about grain traders and the local cooperative that was small but not really heading in the direction it needed to. What's your recollection of that conversation? Well, pretty much as you describe, yes, we were... In a highly competitive game of cricket, it's worth. I'd like to just sort of mention my brother Huey here now, and I'm sure you won't mind. But I mean, he contracted, contracted—that's the wrong word—multiple yeah. sclerosis. He was diagnosed about 17 or 18 years ago now, but it hit him pretty hard seven or eight, ten years ago, uh, to the point now where he is very immobile, and life is not too much fun for Hugh at the moment. And multiple sclerosis is a truly dreadful thing. It's very difficult mentally to contend with and you can only have admiration for those that do manage it well. And Huey managed it in his usual sort of phlegmatic way. And there's one particular story that he had when my brother David took him to see a specialist and the specialist said to my brother Hugh, now then Hugh, what is it that you can't do now that you used to be able to do? And Huey just said, because his speech was not great then, he just said, run. And, oh, said the specialist, you like running, do you? No, hate running. (laughs) Which sort of summed up his sense of humour. Anyway, yeah, he's, uh, so just, you know, multiple sclerosis, horrible thing. Doesn't get often the support or recognition that something that affects 110,000 people in this country deserves. Yeah, no, well, I mean, Huey's famous cricket was organised by him on the cricket pitch on the farm. And basically a load of us got together on a weekly basis and played against people, some of which tried really hard and others kind of got in the spirit of realising that there wasn't that much depending upon it. And it was kind of the the mood of Huey, his style, that created what can only be described as idyllic Thursday evenings in the past. It was lovely, wasn't it? And that was as much, you know, I mean, we're all missing Huey being around and having his kind of wise observations about things like... I liked Norwich Bitter was the one I remember best Huey for. And Norwich Bitter, for those who remember the sort of 70s stroke 80s, was just brown tap water that tasted disgusting under the guise of being bitter before Real Al kind of kicked back in again. And I said, what on earth made you like that stuff? He said, I could drink as many pints of it as I liked and I'd still be able to keep having another one, (laughs) which is a logic to it. So, yeah. His cricket was where we all used to congregate, various forms of agricultural types, mainly farmers, but, you know, Willie Randall was there and I was there and various other agricultural hangers-on or whatever you want to call us. And we just had a social do, didn't we? Uh, yeah, great memories, you know. I mean, it was it was idyllic in the sense that there we were in the evening sunshine playing on a very rural and pretty setting at Bradfield and yeah, it was great and it was good fun and all played in the best spirits and other... Yeah. The rules were as they were. If you got 25, you were too good and you were out. 
Couldn't be out first ball. So you could, you first could swing balls. at that one. These are very much rules of Huey's making, I think. But uh, it worked very well, yeah, yeah, everybody. Man. And we had surprisingly close and exciting matches. <laughs> With a dodgy score that always made us win. <laughs> We did have a surprising and probably undeserved number of victories, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, well, so there we were, me and you standing in the outfield and someone, you know, hitting the ball away and one of us was supposed to chase it and we'd, we'd let someone else go in the end. But the conversation that we had kind of touched on the dynamic of how do you develop a cooperative? What does a cooperative do to grow? Because Ailsham Grain had, you know, a small site that had been built in 1980, 81 which is its 40th anniversary. And what happened was it had got to a size and stopped, hadn't it? Well, yes, it had. I mean, it was constrained to a degree, but yes, it had. It did have room to put up more bins, but the marketing side was a thing that troubled the board at the time, of which I was one of them. And we had been, we had marketing agencies or marketing groups doing the marketing for us. And that wasn't working brilliantly. It always started off with lots of promise, but... We ended up basically just being shipped into a pool of some sort and people sort of feeling obligated without having the necessary loyalty that we wanted to create around Aylsham, in other words, a natural loyalty. So we wanted to have our own marketing outfit, but how could we do that? So this was how the conversation, I think, more or less went with you. What about it, Andrew? You could do that, perhaps, and you thought, well... No, but perhaps. And <laughs> the d- the next day, or I don't know. I think it sort of it sort dynamic. of rolled on from there. Didn't yeah, it? for me, I was you know I had I was being paid very well by a company in the south of Norfolk, which I travelled to every single day from up here. I didn't want to move down to Bressingham, and so in the recent months just prior to that, I was one of the syndicate that won the lottery. You know, so my life had been I'd been out to ditch my mortgage and kind of things had you know, you look at your life and you've got two young boys and you couldn't spend as much time with them. And, you know, we had a conversation about how much I earned and you said, Well, you know, the thing is how I aren't gonna be able to afford anything like that. So it was a battle of kind of you know, I could see a massive appeal to do something the way I wanted to do it. That had always been I always felt there were things that weren't being done right and I felt I could do a better job, you know, arrogant little git that I was. And that appealed, but the dynamic of earning a lot less money probably didn't. But between the two of us we kind of said, Well, let's try and get so we can work something out and we well, we, you took a risk on taking me on in the sense that you don't know what's going to happen and you got assistance with a grant, which helped for the first couple of years of my employment towards the cost. But I also just took a big pay cut with a view to if we got above a certain size, I started getting a bonus if we got tonnage above that, which was ambitious at the time for Aylsham. But obviously I felt, yeah, I can do that because, again, when you're young, you think you can do anything. And so I committed to it and... Yeah, so 25 years ago, on the 26th of May, I walked in the door, and one of my lasting memories of that period, because we got, I want to touch on what's happened in that 25 years to you and your farming and to Alsham Grain. But I remember I walked in the door at a time when the market had gone up on the back of a drought on corn planting. The very next day it got to contract high, and then for the next 10 years... And you mentioned this at a when you stood up in front of a, a Loddon Farmers, we'll come up to Loddon Farmers, a Loddon Farmers meeting, you were chairman, and you stood up and you said, Is it true in the 10 years since you've been at Aylsham, the wheat price has never been as high as the day you walked in the door? <laughs> Jim has a very good skill of dropping you in it just before a meeting started, so you kind of left with no words in your mouth. And the truth was, that day, the next day, the 27th, was 
the next time the wheat price achieved where it was was at just over 10 years afterwards. So, yeah, I, I had yeah. an impact. Well, yeah, and <laughs> I'd like to say I could... I was clever enough to say what was going to happen in the future, but of course no one is. But I would say that you coming to Alsham was fortuitous and it was to a degree the making and the saviour at the same time because when we had the outside companies doing it, of course, the marketing was limited to the tonnage in the store mm. and the tonnage in the store went in and it came out and that single lump, that simple lump of storage was what was marketed. So mm. it never got very big, it never got significant in any way for the area. Yeah. So by you coming in and expanding both out-of-store tonnage significantly, but also finding ways of making the store work a lot harder, I think you sweated those assets in the first 10 years about as hard as they could have been. And that then enabled those final bins to be put in and enabled so much to happen around that. And I think if that hadn't happened, if we had pursued the old method previous method of staying with a group doing our marketing on our behalf the cost of Alsham grain would probably have frightened too many people off at that time well all the other co-ops in that period went broke or disappeared or got taken over by somebody else there is nobody left in east anglia that was a cooperative central store blycorn west norfolk grain fen grain are now under the control of frontier cam grain under the control of frontier there is no central storage other than Alsham grain and I think the dynamic of growth occurred. Yes, we, we started dealing with more people. It became a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. As more people got involved, they told more people. So farmers are very good at telling each other by word of mouth. We didn't do a big marketing push. We simply did the simple stuff easily. The objective was to get the bins built to make the place a viable site. It's only a small site. It's only 21,000 tonnes. But once you got the 8,000 tonnes that were there functioning better and some contracts coming on the outside because you had more tonnage to negotiate with people started to want their own space as well because it's a very very good model of taking in grain up to 19 percent for no or minimal extra charge over stuff that was under that so people could utilize it as a wet bin go combining at i don't know nine in the morning instead of 11 have two hours clean run and send that stuff to Alsham for next to no extra charge and then cut an extra hour or so in the evening when the mist came in so the bit in the middle of the day could go on the home farm and we sold that concept and then other farmers told other farmers and so on and so on and very soon our well we're now 20 just over 21,000 tonnes of capacity is sold out completely. Yeah, and yeah, you're right. The 19% was a huge thing, actually. You could, you know, not necessarily just for those farmers that had their own storage and wanted to tip onto a floor, but there were many who just have put everything they had into Alsham. Mm. And it was their processing unit, so we could start combining at 9 o'clock in the morning and finish when we got fed up with combining. <laughs> so yeah. that was it, and I think... Probably you remember, and I can, I've witnessed, and you must have looked at it with a degree of terror, the, the speed at which some of those loads crept off trailers in those early days before there was a little more control put over how wet would be acceptable. Yeah, but we haven't had a wet harvest for four years. No, but the initial 10 years was actually some wet harvest, yeah. quite significantly oh, so, and Alsham really did help out a great deal there. But yeah, you're right. You know, it's well, a bit easier we, recently. We've got a late, late harvest this year. Potentially, we could see some damp grain this year for the first time. I know no one wants that, but at least an Alsham member knows it's going to cost... We've just dropped the charges again because the company's in a really good place now. It's kind of paid off its initial depreciation. It's 40 years old, and it's 
you know, it's already written itself down to as low as it needs to be written down to. So the members who actually own the space are gradually seeing reductions in charges, which, which in this day and age is unheard of. And I think we'll still head in a further southerly direction in terms of costs. So it is a nice exclusive little club, isn't it now? But yeah, and it's worth mentioning. I'm surprised you haven't already, but it's not the 19% really. That's a useful thing. But what really is the big item as far as Elsham is concerned is the fact that you know when it goes into Elsham that if it's slightly out of spec, then you are not going to be, how do I put this? Shafted is the phrase you're grasping you, you, for. I know I've listened to your podcast in the past and you, you do use, um, I think, oh, that's great. That'll get you on with your grain trading mates. Yeah. But yes, you're not going to have undue deductions put on you. And that has certainly been the history. And it still is the history of grain trading. And it it's quite damaging to a farmer's income. And yet at Elsham... There is, you know, if there is blending going on, yes, you take a bit of a hit, but nothing serious. And the chances are that whatever you grow will get sold at a good price. And that really is the key. Alsham is a true cooperative. Alsham Grain Limited, the storage cooperative, is a true cooperative. So any advantage from anything going through that site should only benefit the members. That's their investment. Therefore, it's there to try and do that job. So... When I first joined, I joined as Alsham Grain Marketing, you know, which was a diddy little company. And that's the thing that I was able to grow initially, which fed the store. The dynamic that occurred in between now and then is it was successful. It made money, but it got too big for the risks of running a grain trading business are immense. And in the early 2000s, around that time, the volatility and the troubles in agriculture were such it was too much of a distraction. A farmer had his own troubles to then be on a committee that's supposedly overseeing some maverick grain trader doing nutty stuff. I could have been without serious management overseeing what I did. You know, you're at risk of having an idiot blow all your well, money away. It has happened, didn't it? In, was it Lincolnshire? It's happened. It's, it's just happened. Others, in, but yeah, within the first 10 years, it <clears> was quite a bad. There's been a number of historical bankruptcy. Yeah. yeah, and there's one recently in Scotland that's going to be very ugly. We don't know the details of that yet, I'll say, diplomatically, but it's there's a mess coming up there. So, as quite rightly, the board of farmers who were responsible to oversee what I did didn't understand totally what I was doing all the time. I, I was trying to explain to them, but when it came to the gripping moment of really, look, you know, we've got those futures sold against that malting barley because we think this this and this is going to happen and you'll benefit from it that you know there's some very puzzled expressions from the poor buggers who are given the job of overseeing my trading and i will tell one story that of a very marked moment in my history of there was an agm at aylsham one year and i traded a fantastic book i absolutely walked on water there's only one year out of however many what happened was that the physical price that we achieved was I think it was something like £15 above the comparable cooperative you know, group serial services comparison. We, our pool price, if you like, was superb. And I'd done it through a process of trading physical and trading futures. At the very end of the year, the futures book had a £3,000 loss on it. But that was, you know, because of our timing. I think what we did was we got out of the futures and, and ran a long physical book at the end of the year. And it made lots of money. And so I should have been hailed emperor. Tom Crane stood up and said at the meeting, he said, and it could have been a little bit more if Andrew hadn't speculated on the futures. Oh, and all eyes turned to me as if I was, what did he just say? And that kind of emphasised the direct understanding or misunderstanding of 
what it takes to trade a claim book. It simply is complicated. But you and were trying to explain that to everybody at the same time as oh. there had been a couple of catastrophic yeah. instances which we had touched on earlier with grain traders getting that seriously wrong and then trying to hide their errors. And so, yes, there was quite a degree of reticence. But you did lead us all gently into uh, <laughs> understanding uh, futures Not- trading. And I think you kept your frustration more or less under control. <laughs> but... Nevertheless, I think most people in Elsham do understand the trading and make use of it. I mean, that is the marketplace. At the end of the day, you can say you sell to the feed market, to the bread market. You can say you've got this, that and the other. But every grain trader is basing their pricing on the futures market. The Elsham membership have no idea just how educated they are relative to the rest of the trade. The rest of the trade has spent a lifetime chucking as much dust and mist in the air as they possibly can to make cash settlements, options, all the things that we've done over the years. As a matter of course, my guys, you, will go, this market's going up, I want to cash settle it, or what are options costing? As a matter of course, it's still like some form of revolution in large slices of the country. I had an email from a guy in North Cambridgeshire who came through, he said, you know, we're not all as lucky as Norfolk having alternatives who give us these marketing tools. Why not? Why Why doesn't it exist? That, it, it astounds me. It doesn't exist because it's in the interest of the guys to say, no, you're a farmer, you don't understand, I'll just, I'll keep all the money, thanks very much. It is a frustration of mine. <laughs> you're dealing with it every day and a farmer dips into it half a dozen times yeah. a year. He might look at the prices a lot, but is actually making that actual sale or that decision doesn't happen very often and certainly not often enough to understand it and mm-hmm. I think most farmers do accept that and understand it understand that they don't understand the marketplace and the mechanics the time. nuts yeah it, it, the cogs there's it, other things to think about oh yeah no absolutely grain trading is two percent of your thought process but nowadays there's so much information out there there's, I've got you know someone will read an article that somebody's written and come on and, and say well you know what about this Argentinian situation then and I'll go it's news to me I haven't read that and I couldn't find out whether it's relevant or not but there is so much information now I've got a whole load of you know amateur sleuths who can tell me more about the grind trade than I can can they actually make a a conscious decision about what the long-term view is or how to take advantage of that no probably not that's what I've got to be good at that bit but on a daily basis I can be you know I've got used to being wrong or unaware of stuff again back to another Elsham grain AGM story, there I was, Mr. Clever Clogs, a great price, I was feeling full of beans, and your dad was chairman, John Olsen was the chairman when I was taken on, and he said, I went through what, what my little presentation about, you know, corn stocks and wheat stocks and production and consumption, whatever, I, I, I'm so important, your dad said, what's the rice stocks at the moment, Andrew? <laughs> and it was completely relevant he's absolutely right and I didn't know and he kind of just pulled a wise old sage face like <laughs> you got you there sonny <laughs> he and, tell me, yeah I, I do remember that I do remember that was quite funny and he I mean John was obviously very experienced in the grain trade wasn't he I well mean, he used to be a grain trader indeed in and Norwich he, and he started you know well that was his first job really very dangerous beast in Norwich and a chairman farmer who's been a grain trader not many probably but <laughs> you know but yes and, and of course he was one of the party that started up Alston Grain at the whole beginning of it yeah and well, invested in it quite heavily yeah, I mean, well, the Alston experience in the cooperative sector is significant. Your dad being chairman, I can't remember how many years he was chairman now, but a very large number of years. 
and yeah, he had a style of, well, he ultimately believed in the process in the first place. I was very grateful for him giving me the nod to come along. I remember it. I always remember he said, Dad, pop round your house. What, what's he want to pop round my house he for? He did that with <clears throat> everybody he either employed on the farm or he had anything to do with in a cooperative. If they were going to be employed and he had anything to do with the employment, he went to visit them at home. <laughs> okay. so didn't go down well with some. <laughs> no, so when he turned up at mine, right, bearing in mind the lottery, when I decided to pay this gardener to do a whole load of land, so I had heaps of mud and, and soil and everything all over the place. The house had just had a, an extension put on it. It was absolutely upside down. I think we sat on a, you know, on a couple of chairs with a bit of cardboard over the top of what was a complete and utter devastated kitchen. So quite what you thought of it, I don't know. I well, said, why do you do that, Dad? Well, he says, I'd like to see how tidy the house is. And he's still employed you. <laughs> so, I, I think he saw he that. He must as... have impressed in other ways. <laughs> Work in progress. Work in progress, I think I told him. I think he probably thought, yeah, he's got a vision, this boy. It'll be good one day. But if you look at my desk, it looks the same as it did when he came in. Yeah, no. So in that 25 years, I mean, there's been a large number of companies disappear. You know, there has been troubles in the grain trading world. It's become a much smaller marketplace. There's not dominance yet, but it's there's some pretty big guys out there who have got lots of muscle and a lot less independence going on. And the cooperative sector is, is completely on its back. That's the really sad issue. Do you think, because your involvement in cooperation was not just in the grain side, because you were, as I mentioned, chairman of Lodden Farmers, do you think cooperation is in trouble or do you think it will resurge or how do you see that one developing? You know, I don't really know because I I do get frustrated with cooperatives when they sell out and it's happened time and time again. The farmer builds up value within a business and it's called a mutual or even a limited company, but essentially the farmer members own it, the trading members own it. They have all the value that's in it is transferred to them through profit sharing or lower prices or if it's in a grain trading business, higher prices. But essentially the profit is shipped out. But what inevitably happened, or not inevitably, what so often has happened, is that some new manager turns up and he says, "Mm, we should turn this into a limited company and get the shares traded. And you will benefit from that because you'll get more value through the share price and dividends. The farmer says, oh, a few grand in my pocket this Christmas would go down well. So they agree and suddenly they realise they don't have a cooperative anymore. They're trading with a company that has the same motives as every other profit-making company and as those original members disappear and sell their shares then the ownership moves out of agriculture into investors who have a different outlook to farmer members and so the whole thing just slowly disappeared and you can look at group after group after group that have done just that and that's where they've gone and starting up a new group that would become significant enough to have any effect on the marketplace that would take some very large farmers to get together to do it and they're not the natural cooperators no at the moment so that is the break that i think will go on to farmer cooperation as we've known it in the past yeah i mean there's two points to that firstly we have direct experience the elsewhere grain marketing that i was managing got too much for the farmers to to have happy control of and we decided or concluded to look somewhere to merge it didn't we and you were anti the plan because you said all of those things but the people didn't have the stomach to want to keep doing what they were doing you know there there was too much risk having me as this guy who may or may not lose money with the benefit of hindsight 
obviously, if they'd said, look, Andrew, get on with it, do it yourself, and you manage our business and get on with it, it would have been a great success. I can say that hand on up because the dynamic was we merged with a cooperative group in theory, but in the end, the dynamic of the store didn't make anywhere near as much money because the throughput dramatically dropped and it wasn't managed as well, and the members' prices were worse. There's, you know, I was representing a company that wasn't performing as well as we could, and now that might cause some trouble saying that, but the reality was it became very, very poor relation to what it was when it was an independent little company fighting and punching and for every penny that it could get and keeping every blended pound for the store or for the members and it was enough for me to go I've had enough of this I'm off you know and I decided to leave and Ailsham then said well will you take back the management of the store because they hadn't made enough money so that gave me a platform to then set my company up but the dynamic of that little Ailsham grain marketing did pay everybody a lump sum but then it just the performance of what they were receiving simply wasn't good enough. People were beginning to leave. That's proof of it. And you're right, and that's what can happen. And you're talking about a situation in a way which I've just described. And it was all working great at the moment. But I think it's what happens on from there. And this is, at the moment, Alsham is operating very well as far as I'm concerned. It's got my interests at heart, and that comes across. But that's quite an important thing to keep in mind as far as the Alsham setup, be it Dewing Grain or Alsham Grain, the two are almost thought of as one, is concerned because the people who own the shares in Dewing Grain, for instance, are may not be the people who are sending the grain into Alsham in 10, 15 years' time. Mm. And that's what tends to happen with cooperatives. And once enough people have share ownership and not involved with the actual supply of the crop to yeah. that store then get an offer from i don't know frontier cargill whoever and say look we'll give you 200 pound a share do you want it mm. and as soon as they say yes to that then that cooperative ethos that company has disappeared mm. which ailsham are fiercely still focusing very hard on we recently had a storage sale tender and you know, it was fought for, you know, the price of it, it traded in excess of £81 a tonne, which is great. You know, the original cost of storage was £25 a tonne, and everybody got their money back after 12 years. And now if they wanted to sell the asset all these years later, they get, you know, three and a bit times on top of what, you know. So it's, it's been a good investment in that context. But the people who are buying the space are local vetted farmers. So the corporate Ailsham is because it's stuck rigidly to the principle of having farmers as the, the key people who need to use the store. It didn't overexpand itself. It didn't go and build a store somewhere else and a store somewhere else without having the tonnage behind it. It only built storage when it got storage sold. And it, right, it decided, in my opinion, it made a mistake not to expand at a critical point. But it doesn't matter because the dynamic of what we would have done with expansion we've achieved within the doing grain umbrella and we've got other stores where people can go more locally and there's an interaction between stores but Ailsham has religiously kept farmers using the space the assets have sweated they've allowed us to bring other tonnage through it from local farmers to blend or dry or whatever so we will budget on a 120% usage of the store, not 100% and then charge people for not using it, which other stores do. We have in excess of the tonnage through it every year because it means the overheads are covered. And the dynamic 
for the member is that helps keep his charges down and more importantly it's all local farmers who benefit i think that ailsham will remain incredibly strong and, and it survived the long period of depreciation of building the site it's 40 years old most of the depreciation has gone it's just the odd bits of new kit we've done recently so our potential costs i think i touched on this earlier are you know just heading downwards it is going to be a really cheap place to keep grain which kind of really does tick the box for all the original members yeah and isn't it interesting isn't it 25 pound a ton struggle to find enough tonnage so yeah. my father and billy hammond bought tonnage they didn't need well and, that's the yeah that's that's and, another and, thing and 25 pound a ton and now we're up to 80 pound a ton and i know it's a long while afterwards but if you look at the price of the price of the tonnage going up three and a half times compared to the price of grain then and now yeah you know as you say it it touched the peak just after you joined and <laughs> yeah it's been back and been higher yeah, yeah but i mean at the end of the day this is where farming is isn't it um, and so uh, you better be thrown under bus jim you know, let's face it let's let's just go in one direction and slowly prices creep up though i do think we're perhaps on a slightly rising plane at the moment yeah well if liz trust and george eustace literally don't as I say, throw you under a bus. Farmers need to be more savvy. Let's get back to that point about, you know, the farmers are not great cooperators. I think need creates cooperation. And I don't think in recent 25 years there's been the need. There's been enough of a price. Been, yes, there's been some tough times, but there's not been enough of a need in the cereal sector for anyone to not be independent. I think we're going to have some rough treatment from government through lack of awareness about strategic stocks and strategic supply and, you know, let's get it cheaper from somewhere else that doesn't have to have the same specs. So there's going to come a point where farmers are going to need to go, no, I'm not doing that. And that will be a moment that hopefully there'll be some form of cooperation again. I think it will come back. Yeah, well, I hope you're right. It depends what sort of farmer we're dealing with or you were dealing with. It's in the industry at the time, and certainly through Lodden Farmers and Anglia Farmers, the AF group as it is now, the trend has been quite marked. You do have the similar number of farmers, but you have an ever-decreasing number of decision-makers and purchasers or in grain-trading sellers because of contract farming and that sort of agreement. So on paper, as far as DEFRA is concerned, number of farmers, we've still got too many, but the number of decision-makers is just crashing. Which means that it's a lot easier to eventually get the key people with very big volumes behind them to go, right, we're going to lead something here, we're going to do something. Well, that's where I think it'd be interesting to see what does actually happen because those people you're talking about are not meant before, really, are not natural cooperators with other key no. people because more so now than previously, that person they're trying to cooperate with is also a direct competitor to the land they want to farm. Mm. And so it makes it more difficult to create those cooperative groups where you have commitment to it, mm. as opposed to just using it as a price information supplying business. And I think you hit on it earlier, the amount of information that's crowding into a farm office now is just colossal, whether it's grain trading or whether it's coming from a satellite as to where the tractors are and what <laughs> they're doing, I don't know. It's just... How relevant is it? You know, you get... Yeah, trying to remember all the passwords for the agricultural <laughs> programs you've got is difficult enough, let alone worrying about what they actually tell you when you get in there. Can you see on your satellite where your tractors are on the farm now? So, you I've know, oh, Billy's having too long a lunch hour. I thought this will be interesting. And, yeah, we have got that. But I soon lost interest because <laughs> it was going up and down the field all the time. <laughs> <There's> a... 
Yeah, I mean, you hear stories about people who drive down the road and peep through hedges to make sure the men were working. You don't need to do that anymore, do you? I always enjoyed <laughs> selling my vehicles. I used to do it more often than what I have now because I always had about six months after my vehicle was sold when I didn't have to go around at all, so long as I made sure I sold it locally. Yeah. Because whoever bought it would do my job. They would be driving around Calthorpe, Erpingham area. <laughs> be seen. Of course, we have more people to worry about then than we do now. Yeah. So, Jim, I think we've done enough time here to have covered the fact that 25 years ago, you, or 26 years ago, it was the summer of the previous year, we had that conversation. You, your father, the board of Alsham Graham were kind enough, good enough to take a risk on employing that idiot that I was. And the success of Alsham Grain and the strength of it, you know, and the gratitude I have where I am is very much down to that probably three beers into the evening conversation. So, Jim, for that... Thank you very much. We're going to have next week's podcast with you again, so we're going to keep talking. But for this week, thank you for what we've been talking about. Oh, and I thank you for the grain trading you've taken on my grain in the past. So. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.